Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank one of our sponsors, our good friends at Precision Pro Golf. No Laying Up is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf. As the weather turns warmer and a new golf season arrives, it brings all sorts of possibilities to reach a lower handicap, improve your driver, or simply just play more golf and have fun. No matter what your golf goals are this year, Precision Pro Golf can probably help. Their award-winning rangefinders give golfers a reliable number to the target, whether you're aiming at the flag or trying to avoid a hazard. Everyone here at NLU uses the NX9 Slope. It has all the features golfers love, advanced slope technology, pulse vibration, and an embedded magnet built into the rangefinder so you can securely attach it to the cart. It's also tournament legal, so should you happen to qualify for the PGA Championship this year, you'll be good to go. And Precision Pro Golf measures more than just distances. Their new one-of-a-kind golf app offers advanced insight into your golf game that will help measure your performance and let you know where you can improve. Search the App Store or Android Marketplace for the Precision Pro Golf app. Our listeners also receive $20 off the NX9 slope by using our coupon code TRAPDRAW, all one word. Go to precisionprogolf.com, use coupon code TRAPDRAW at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 Slope. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. Very special episode today. I am joined by two associates, two friends. Uh, the first sitting directly across the table from me, Mr. DJ Pihowski. DJ, good afternoon. Hey, associates first and then friends. You know, all loyalty is to the listener here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and joining us live via... Via the computer, the magic of the internet, Mr. Kevin Van Valkenburg, KVV of ESPN. How are you, sir? I'm great, boys. It's uh, it's good to be back. I, I've never been on this trap draw. I've uh, you know done the main pod a few times, uh, fifty times or something. But you know now I'm I'm playing off Broadway. And I love it. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm almost ashamed. This is your first time on the trap draw. I'm very sorry about that. Oh, I didn't mean to shame you that way. I just uh, was pointing it out for, you know, whoever out there has, like, got an Excel sheet, like, keeping the list of all of the Trap Draw guests, uh, they can add my name to the tally. It could be a bit, you know, with the PJ Tour going to Baltimore, it could be a total coming out party for you at the Trap Draw this year. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Are we, we're going to, like, just mega content around uh, the BMW in, in Baltimore this year. The, the boys are definitely efforting Jimmy McNulty, but, you know, if he, if he can't come up, uh, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> Uh, and, of, uh, and of course, KVV of, of strapped Baltimore fame. Uh, I, I think I, I, I should have led with that. I'm not sure if you get recognized more for that or your extraordinary writing at ESPN. But um, if, if folks are wondering that voice, I've heard that voice. It's uh, he was a proud participant on Strap Baltimore. Literally uh, five times, maybe I've been like had randos come up to me, uh, be like, "Hey, are, are you?" Uh, KVV. It's like, uh, 
Oh, I saw you on the Nulling Up show. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I only watched like two of the episodes, but, uh, you know. <laughs> the fact you were on there, man, I respect yeah. that. Which it always blows my mind. I'm like, why would you? I don't get it. It's like, will you watch like two thirds of the Star Wars trilogy? You don't want to know how it ends? Like, a- <laughs> well, hopefully they saw you career it, if nothing else. Exactly. Hopefully that was not the one they skipped. You've almost, I was thinking, so, right? we need to get you on, uh, on Tour Sauce. You've almost got like the, the NLU EGOT. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, I've, I hope somebody out there will please put together that Excel sheet because I got to be in the running for that. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, the reason for our chat today, we do perfect clubs from time to time on the trap draw, and that is what today's episode is all about. And specifically, we have all watched and we will talk about the show. I, th- I think show is the best way to describe it um, on Hulu called In and of Itself. It's currently streaming on Hulu. It is, and, and if I could read you the description straight off the website, it Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself is a new kind of lyric poem. It tells the story of a man fighting to see through the illusion of his own identity, only to discover that identity itself is an illusion. Which, like, right there, it's, whoa. (laughs) First of all, same. Yeah. (laughs) An intimate and powerful exploration of what it means to be and be seen, the film chronicles Derek Delgadio's attempt to answer one deceptively simple question. Who am I? His personal journey expands to a collective experience that forces us to confront the boundaries of our own identities. Uh, It's 90 minutes. It can be as heavy as the description makes it sound, and that's what I I look forward to talking to you guys about it. Let me start here. Uh, What what did you guys know about this before you watched it? Did did you know anything? Well, not not to jump in, but I I would almost kind of on that note, I, I would almost say if you haven't seen it, I would strongly recommend hitting pause. Uh, Turn this off. Yeah, come back to us. Because that leads into your first question, I think, which is that I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about this show that had apparently been running uh, in New York for many, many years. Uh, The only thing I knew was that KVV kept tweeting about it, and he was (laughs) texting me saying, hey, have you watched this? Have you watched this? We should talk about this. Have you watched this? Uh, Then I got another text from from other friends, and it, it was just it finally reached critical mass. Uh, and I fired it up totally, you know, based on those recommendations with no preconceived, uh, information whatsoever, which I, I would say is probably the, uh, probably the ideal viewing experience. Kevin, you agree with that? Yes. I will admit that basically all of my tweeting and posting on the message board about it was basically just inception to try to get you and Randy, uh, (laughs) to watch it. And, uh, I hope Neil watches as well because I want to hear his thoughts eventually, but, um, I had gotten a recommendation from a friend uh, who basically told my fiance Tiffany, "Hey, you guys really need to watch this, and don't don't read anything about it. Just jump right into it. Just trust me on this. Do it." And so that's how I tried to sort of pass along the recommendation because I think the first you know fifteen minutes you're kind of watching it like, "What the fuck? Like, what what am I exactly?" <laughs> buying into here is this a comedy like you, people are like kind of awkwardly laughing and yet he's sitting there sort of seriously stone-faced and you know the audience doesn't know what they're in for exactly uh just like i think if you're watching at home that's the kind of experience you want so right if you haven't seen it i hope we've convinced people don't don't listen this this podcast will be waiting for you go watch it uh it is worth noting it's the 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 show itself is a mixture of he's 
Derek Delgadio has performed the show in front of a live audience um, for many months, and the the special on Hulu uh, combines many different shows. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, though. So let me say, I Kevin, you must have been the first one among us then to see it. Uh, and when I watched it, I only knew from DJ had been like, yeah, have you seen it yet? I'm like, no, I've been meaning to. I haven't. He's like, you just got to like, you just got to watch. I'm like, is it magic? I kind of heard it was like magic. He's like, uh, yeah, a little bit. Because uh, I dig magic. And I want to ask you guys about that. Uh, but he's like, it's more just like a show. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Um so let's. I want to start there, and I'll toss this to DJ, um, and then Kevin. I want to. I want to hear your response. But like broadly speaking, are you guys into magic? Is, is that something that excites you? I wish that probably the answer was that I was not as interested in it as I am. I always feel kind of dorky uh, whenever I I am into it, but I absolutely love it. I don't know as I don't know enough about it, but like. I, I, you know what, Rain? I love being bewildered. You know, I love, I love having the like, God, how did they do that? Look on my face, uh, and there's a good deal of of that in this in this show. Uh, yeah, short answer, yes, love it. I don't know anybody who doesn't like magic. KVV, what about you? Yeah, I, I love kind of that feeling of being surprised and like you get to the end of it and you're like, no fucking way. Like what, the, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, so I, a few years ago, I went, one of my buddies was turning 40 and he wanted to just have like a hangout weekend in Vegas. And so I went out there with him and he didn't really know like much about like the scene there. And neither one of us were like wanting to go like to the terrible awfulness of like strip clubs or whatever. And so I was like, well, what if, how about we go see, you know, a, a show? And he's like, well, what's, what's a good show to see? And I was like, well, Penn and Teller seemed like a great idea. And so we went to a Penn and Teller show and it was legitimately like laugh out loud, funny, but also at the same time, like just absolutely mesmerizing. And one of my best friends, Chris Jones used to write for Esquire. And he wrote this piece a few years ago about Teller and who is the silent guy in Penn and Teller. Penn's the guy who does all the talking and Teller's the kind of this shorter guy who's super quiet. And he, the, this article was kind of about this famous trick that Teller had performed where he kind of like holds a rose up in front of a shadow. And I don't want to go into it too much, but essentially like he kind of like cuts the petals off the rose with the shadow, like not touching the rose at all. And the rose sort of falls. And it's this sort of like amazing famous trick that only Teller has ever been able to sort of do. And someone stole his trick and started doing it on their own. And so he like filed a lawsuit against, and so this story kind of traces the, the art of magic and what it's all about and why magicians do what they do. And in the end, I'm not going to spoil it, but you really should read it. You realize, oh my God, this whole story was a fucking magic trick. And it's one of the smartest like magazine pieces that I think that I, that I'll always remember getting to the end of it. And so I've always kind of liked that idea of like, you know, performance that kind of, I, I guess, morphs into art. Uh, and that's really what magic is, right? It's just a skill. And we talk about all the time about, like, can you, with a straight face, can you really say that, like, golf is ever art? Well, like, you know, in a way, like, you can. If someone's doing it, like, watch me do this amazing thing that you won't believe that I can actually freaking do. And I'm going to awe you, and I, you know, I'm on some level, like, chasing the awes because I like that feeling, 
but I also think that it's really kind of cool. It's a, I've put these practice and skills in for most of my life. And now I want to show you like what I'm capable of. And so that would be my long witted explanation of, yeah, I like magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I like magic. Um, do you guys, I, I would geek out over David Blaine. I don't know if you guys have ever watched any of his street magic specials. Um, a number of them have been on TV. I, I can remember as far back as high school, like trying to convince my friends straight up long arguments on the weekend. Like, no, dude, he's actually levitating. And they're like, no, you're an idiot. But I'm like, no, but like, how would he do it otherwise? Um, so I, I love, I think DJ, that word you said, be, I, like, I love feeling bewildered, which made me think, uh, and, and juxtapose that. I, I, it's very interesting for me personally that, I, I approach magic with like, oh, yeah, man, like I kind of know it's not real, but I love it. And like I just want to suspend belief and, and you know, believe and dive into it and not to get things too heavy, but I take almost the exact opposite tact with religion, right? Where it's like, I yeah, I don't really think it's real and... Nah, I don't. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to be, be bewildered. And it's just it, it's interesting for me that those two things are at such odds, um, but yet kind of emanate from the the same place. So big, big David Blaine fan uh, <laughs> is, is is what I want to is what I want to leave you there. Uh, all right. I remember. I remember very specifically. It's similar. Like I'm a little older than you guys. Like when David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. <laughs> And it was like, it was this big television event. And, you know, like he basically like hung a curtain up in front of a window and then like whipped the curtain away. And, and like all, everybody in like my seventh grade class was like, oh my God, did you see how fake that looked? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? They made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Did you do know anybody in New York who could actually like check and see if like, the Statue of Liberty disappeared? So. Well, I think that that brings up a really interesting point too that I think, you know, goes a long way in, in explaining or talking about this show in and of itself, which is I feel like magicians uh, have such a tough road to hoe as far as that they really walk the, the knife's edge as far as being deeply fucking uncool <laughs> and like mesmerizing. You know what I mean? And, and those are two examples of like the David Blaine. There, there's no way David Blaine was like a cool guy up until he was. You know what I mean? And, and even you can debate whether he is or not. But I, I, I'm thinking of like Chris Angel. Totally. Free. Yes. Like, like there's yeah. no way he Deeply started out uncool. as just like, you know what? I'm going to take up magic because I'm so <laughs> fucking cool. And this is how I'm going to I'm gonna really, you know, bring people to respect me is that they already respect me. This is going to take it to the next level is me sitting alone in my bedroom learning all these magic tricks. Point because being. Be great, right? Yeah. You got to sit for hours and hours yes. and hours just to work on like a one i as a kid someone gave me a magic book and i was like oh i am gonna be like the guy at the bar who could do like a totally cool card trick or whatever and i spent like an hour learning how to palm a card and i can still actually do it like a little bit where like for two and a half seconds you're like oh wow where did that oh that's on his other side of his hand like and that after that i was like yeah i'm not I can't put in like more work to this. This is just too hard for me. <laughs> well, and I think that's a big part of a big part of this show is, you know, I think we all read the same New York Times magazine piece by Jonah Weiner about Derek Delgadio. And he has some great quotes in there about, you know, nobody becomes a magician uh, because their grandpa gave them a, a magic kit. <laughs> they become a magician because they've got like, 
deep seated <laughs> personal issues and they're trying to escape from something. And the whole point of this show, I think, was, you know, as he says it, this is kind of the the first real magician's origin story that's actually true. You know, it's not necessarily I was traveling in the Orient and I discovered these, you know, all the, these crazy tricks that, that, you know, were passed on from all these mages from back in the day. He's like, no, this is, you know, this is kind of my story. And so he lays it all out. And so to your first question, Randy, I don't think I knew, well, I definitely didn't know going in just how, what kind of bona fides he has as a magician. You know what I mean? It it feels like a one-man show monologue, you know, here's what I learned growing up much more than it does. And then he kind of slaps you in the face with like, oh, yeah, by the way, just for fun, I'm I'm also like an incredible magician, like incredible. <laughs> you, you probably didn't see that coming, but like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you want to see it again? Yeah, here, here you go. Here's here's another pretty cool one, uh, which is just a really so opposite of anything I've seen in, you know, I mean, like you said, this is, it's kind of a magic show more than, more than like a monologue, one-man show type of thing. And he's almost so... Uh, you know, he's almost so restrained and so kind of like over it uh, on a lot of parts that it's just a really interesting tone. Yeah, it's uh, well, let's talk about Derek Delgadio a little bit before we dive into the show itself. Uh, I mean, you mentioned and, and it does play a role in the show, but his his upbringing is, you know, self-described, grew up a loner. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I had not heard of this until we read that aforementioned um, New York Times piece by Jonah Weiner, uh, the book "The Expert at the Card Table," which I guess is already like, I already ordered it. <laughs> yeah, a 1902 <laughs> book written by a guy named S. W. Erdnays, or was it? Which is probably a pseudonym. Nobody knows anything about him, and it's like, yo, if you if if you want to be anything at like dealing or or. Uh, working playing cards like you need to master this book. Uh, so that was a fun little wormhole to go to go down in, and uh, yeah, it, it just you know kind of him him looking for he more or less grew up without a father, and I think some older mu- magicians filled that void for him uh, to where he had some surrogate fathers, uh, looked up to certain people in the industry, and eventually made his way out west to to L.A. and linked up with the right people and started developing these shows. Uh, I know there were some other, you said he had some other kind of crazy jobs growing up. Yeah. So all of, all of, you know, what you just described as people, hopefully who are listening to this have seen it now. know. uh, you know, he describes in great detail as part of the show. He talks about his mom and, and kind of discovering, you know, as a child that she was a lesbian and, and what that meant for his life. He talked about that. He talked about kind of some of the bullying that, that came as a result of that. He talks about moving out. He talks about meeting all these new people and, and uh, the parts he doesn't talk about, which I thought were really interesting from that profile were, yeah, I mean, he served as a, I think a consultant for Disney for a while, just as far as like some magic themed, you know, what are some magic themed attractions we can have at our park? He was a, uh, a consultant for Christopher Nolan on The Prestige, which yeah. I thought was super interesting. It's a movie that I love. Um, and, you know, I think KVV, your your story about Penn and Teller uh, earlier, kind of that that's like the whole premise of that movie basically is, you know, stealing tricks from each other and what that means and trying to one-up each other and what, you you know, who you're really kind of competing against. Um, yeah, so he's kind of kind of did a lot of other things. It sounded like from that profile he was – kind of at a bit of a crossroads where it's he could either go and, and almost be like a anti 
cheating guy for a casino, which is probably a big money job that he said friends of his do, which is, you know, we, you basically figure out the ways that people might cheat and close those loopholes. Uh, or he could really kind of try to make a go of it. And he, so he did a couple of different, couple of different shows like this. And then eventually, you know, kind of everything feels like it kind of peaked around uh, this show in and of itself. KVV, what else do we what, set the stage for us? Anything else you want to add before we before we dive in? Um, just you know that I think a lot of the show is kind of about identity, right? Like, what do we reveal about ourselves, and what do we wish that we could be, and how do we think people see us? And uh, I think that's a question that a lot of us kind of ponder, right? And how much of a front are we sort of putting up for ourselves? I always like pieces of art that sort of um, challenge kind of your conventions in that way. Like you, you know, you think that you're, I'm, I'm not a cynic by nature. And so, I, you know, I know we're going to talk about this, you know, as we sort of get into this, but I went into this, I think with the, the idea of like, you know, I'm open to believing the goodness of this. And I think probably how you view this overall, maybe is a little bit of a reflection on, you know, how you view the world. And I think sometimes I'm naive about things like that, or maybe, you know, optimistically naive, like purposefully, because I want to sort of believe in the good of people. But I could totally see how you could flip this around and be like, this whole thing is just a completely cynical exercise. And I feel disgusted and outraged by uh, the manipulation that went on here. So, which which I feel bad because I think I experienced all of those things in real time while I was texting you the other day as, as I finished it. Which again, we'll we'll get into as as we which get is down. What to, makes it great? Yes. I think that's what makes it good art. Yep. So. Well, I want to read this quote by Delgadio himself. He says, "Quote: The show exists in the gap between you and your image of yourself." And so that's that's one of the the big themes is this idea of you know who who are we. What are we? And more than that, um, you know, what is real and how are, how is that truth bent by our perception of things? Uh, so it explores some very thought provoking, uh, heavy subjects. Honestly, it's like the type of thing where have a group of people watch it and then sit around on a Friday or Saturday night with, uh, you know, maybe some pops or, or some <laughs> other things and, and just discuss it. Um, so how, how do we, how do we break this down? How do you guys want to go about this? I, I've struggled with how to decom decompose and, and talk about it. I think what I would want to know from both of you guys is just what, what was your experience watching it? What was kind of the, uh, what were you feeling as you, you sat down and watched it and how did that maybe change as as the show went on? Literally my first like ten minutes, I was like, This dude looks so much like Patrick Reed and he's freaking <laughs> out. <laughs> like I I think that I would think that even if I wasn't in the golf world. Like he just has the same brow, the same haircut. Like I've I once interviewed Patrick Reed for like half an hour where the two of us were only like in, it was, you know, just the two of us in a tent and it was totally spooking me out. I was like, wait, is the magic trick that this is Patrick Reed? (laughs) Has Patrick Reed been Derek Delgado all this whole time? Has he been, has he been performing magic tricks just to fuck with us? Which begs the question, Patrick Reed, dog or wolf? Oh my God. You know, yeah, I have many thoughts there, but that, (laughs) Uh, Patrick Reed I, seems like a guy with his back to the sun for, oh, for- <laughs> everything is illuminated. As I've said to, I think I texted DJ like Patrick Reed is a wolf 
who knows he's a wolf who looks you straight in the eye and is like, no, man, I'm a dog. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, to, to answer your question, I I was sucked in right from the start. I, I think he had me. Um, it it opens up. And I think that's the the, the Rulatista story, right, is, is kind of our, our introduction. As soon as you see – you see the big board where people are choosing, you know, I am this or I am that. Uh, he asks the audience as they make their way into the show to pick a card. Um, everybody files in. He comes up on stage and really starts telling this pretty engrossing story of going to Spain, being in Spain. Uh, and a guy at the bar starts telling him a story about the Rulatista, uh, a, a guy in a Russian roulette ring that is – Back from the war, seems to be suffering from major depression, PTSD, can't fit in society, and says, screw it, I'm going to play Russian roulette. Uh, if I win, if I don't shoot myself, I'm going to be rich. Uh, as Troubles are over. Exactly. If I do shoot myself, troubles are <laughs> over, which, you know, kind of made me like, that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and so he survives that first night, and then unlike every other person in the Russian roulette game, he comes back a second night. And he does it again, and he survives. And then he comes back a third night. By this time, the word's out. People are like, I don't know if he's doing something uh, to deceive us, but I really don't care. It's become a spectacle at this point. And he does it again, and he survives again. Um, and then help me out here, guys. I'm trying to remember, does it go on until he puts, you know, essentially it's a six-chamber gun, and, he, and as the nights go on, he... First night he loads one bullet, second night he loads two bullets, third night he loads three bullets. Uh, how far up do we get in the story? Do you guys remember? All six. And, and then the earthquake comes and knocks the gun out of, a beam falls and knocks the, the gun out of his hand at the end. That's right. So he survives that way. And um, that, that was his sign to get out of the game, right? Yes. And then so he retires in, in, you know, with mass amounts of fortune and fame. Uh, eventually a... You know, I, I don't want to apologize for spoilers because we already told you to watch it uh, before yeah. we before we got here. But uh, you know, eventually a criminal breaks into his place is is going to rob his house. Uh, he points a gun at the Rulatista, and the Rulatista kind of almost scoffs a little bit, says, "Do you have any idea who I am?" Uh, and the guy says, "No." Pulls the trigger and shoots him. And, and he's now we're in. We're in the show. Which talking about, I, I felt like part of my reaction during watching this was I was constantly in real time trying to like make sense of what he was saying on a bigger level. And I don't know if that was to my detriment or I, I don't know if you guys felt that same way, but it was almost like, my God, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like he's throwing out clues. I feel like everything he says is going to be important. It, it felt like all a big setup to a magic trick that I was like trying to outsmart or keep up with and so i was constantly looking for meaning right off the bat well i think one thing yeah. that you you kind of left out is you know the the guy in spain basically ends his his intro with you know by the way you are the ruletista just i thought you should know and so i think that's you know that's an important context of of him telling the story so it's not you know it is part parable and part you know what does this tell us about chasing uh the wrong things perhaps but also it's you know the first massive insight you get into himself 
I think too, like at this point in this, I didn't know we were watching a magic show yet. I don't know if you guys had figured that out yet, but like only after the show was over, did it really make sense of like, okay, I get now why he told the Rulatisa story. It's like, I'm going to put myself in the arena over and over tonight. And I'm going to show you that I can kind of cheat death or cheat your expectations for what I can and can't do. Like, Oh, there's no way he's going to be able to pull off this card trick. There's no way that he's going to be able to, you know, turn this brick into, you know, a, a thing that, um, that he can blow away under a handkerchief. And so I think that for me, yeah, I was doing the same thing. Like I'm trying to figure this out just sort of naturally how I sort of piece together things, but nothing really clicked until afterwards when I was like, Holy shit. Like he's the wolf or he's, he's a dog with uh, too much wolf in him. He told you what he's doing. And he said, I'm the real teacher in the beginning. And it was like, I'm going to, I think there's a line in there where he says like, you, because you won't believe all this, I'm going to tell you everything I told you is true. And so I don't know like if the real teacher story is like actually true, or if that was just kind of like an artistic setup for it. But I literally believe like everything else is true. Like that he sort of did. Yeah. And I've, I found a quote by David Blaine, uh, who, Again, kind of good buddy now with Derek Delgadio, who says the reason Derek's so incredible is that he's not trying to fool an audience. He's trying to capture an emotion that lies deep within them. And so I, I think that's somewhat important to to the show. Um, he, he moves on after the Rulatisa story to the 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 bottle of booze, and he and he talks about you know the. The guy in the bar, the Rulatista, was a sailor. Uh, he went off to war. That was the part I didn't really understand that, and I didn't know if the the bottle of booze was a personal thing. Where like, has Derek struggled with alcoholism? That that was the one of the six kind of motifs on that wall behind him, or the six chambers um, and, and different themes. That was the one I, I understood the least. I think. Yeah, I thought maybe it was just to make the the sort of transitional connection to like the sailor and like their sailor's log you know everybody sort of writes their own kind of journey of like what they they think the part of the journey is and so uh that like literally that was the first time i had thought like oh this is a magic show like when he folded up the thing and put it into the bottle and you know and then put it up there and revealed that the stand it was on was sand or whatever and i think that I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think about it just until you said it, you know, like the, did he, is there some alcohol allusion to it? But I, I mostly think that it's probably just referencing like the idea of, you know, what kind of stories did the sailors tell when they were kind of wandering the earth and trying to discover the unknown to sort of, and, and that part of the book, you know, this is going to be our kind of captain's log that uh, everybody gets to sort of interpret what they saw as opposed to what I think that they saw. I, I do also think, I mean, I'm probably speaking out of my ass here since I'm not a magician or a monologist that's, uh, that's the fun of or it. a director or a, any of those things. But, uh, you know, I, I got to think that for as real as this is and for as, you know, as true as his story is and all that stuff, I mean, it still has to start with the, the illusions, right? And working backwards from there. And so I, I kind of think it's like, you got to probably start with like, Hey, I could, I can put this thing in the bottle and then kind of reverse engineer. Like, all right, how do I connect that to the story? And I think some of that's, you know, some of them are just going to connect better than others. It was kind of where I landed on that. So is the rule story just pure bullshit made up? Like what does that story exist anywhere outside of the show? 
Not that I've been able to find or Google. Yeah, I mean, same. I haven't done a deep dive on it, but, uh, you know, I, it's the first time I'd ever heard of it. I can't, it was like one of those things where it's a great word, right? And you yeah, think like, so good. where have I heard that word before? Yeah. And then you, you haven't. So that's what kind of what makes it even a better word, right? Is is like, you think that you should be familiar with it, but you aren't. Uh, the only other thing I thought, and I told this to DJ when we first talked about it was, I didn't know if something with that bottle of booze, you know, he, he, he very purposely takes off the label to make the little ship. And I, I don't know, I I'm grasping at, at, you know, connections, but just the, the idea of how we label ourselves and how we label other people and other things. I didn't know if that, you know, played a, a, a small piece in it. Um, yeah. So, I don't think it's wrong at all to like ask about those kind of connections because I think it's all of it is so thought out and considered by him that I think it very much could be that very thing. Like I'm going to take this label off of the bottle and and talk about how we label ourselves versus you know what's really inside of us kind of thing. Hey everybody, sorry to interrupt Randy here. I want to thank our other sponsor for today's podcast, and that is our good friends at DraftKings. Basketball teams are entering the final month of the regular season as they gear up for the playoffs. While some teams are locks to make the playoffs, others are still fighting for their opportunity to chase the trophy this summer. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting you in the center of the action with a chance to turn $1 into $100 in free bets. You can do this by picking any basketball team to win their next game. And if during that game, the team of your choosing hits a three, you bring home $100 in free bets. That's 100 to 1 odds of a team of your choosing to hit a three-pointer, and they don't even have to end up winning the game. Right now, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use promo code TRAPDRAW, all one word, when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free bets if the basketball team of your choosing hits a three. That's code TRAPDRAW to turn $1 into $100 in free bets. For a limited time only, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Again, we thank them for sponsoring the Trap Draw and now back to our conversation. One of the things I really enjoyed from the, again, the, the New York Times Magazine piece that we keep talking about was the involvement of Frank Oz and and what that meant. And for those who don't know, including myself, even though I thought I was a big Star Wars fan, but uh, he's the, he's a, I would say the most famous puppeteer uh, in the world. He's the voice of Yoda. He also randomly directed What About Bob, yeah. uh, which is a quite a, a, a CV uh, yeah. for, for Frank Oz, but uh, getting him involved as the director of this and, some of the quotes that were that were in that piece were really interesting to me in that he would have liked it to be so much more conceptual and so much more confusing than it was. And there were so many people either from the theater or from, you know, kind of a director. Maybe it's like the Hulu kind of side of things. I don't know. But uh, so many people tugging on him for like, all right, listen, all this stuff is great, man. But like you got to meet us halfway. Uh, people need to know what the hell you're talking about here. And so one of the quotes I really pulled. This is, sorry, Delgadio wanted it to be just yes. purely conceptual. Yeah, yeah, so one of the quotes that was in the Jonah Weiner piece was, 
Uh, he told me that he sometimes bristles at the sound of applause. Quote, I kind of, I kind of hate it because it, it feels like it settles the account, he said. You did a thing, we clap, now let's move on to the next thing. I'd sort of... Uh, or, uh, I'd sort of rather people sit there in confused silence, but Frank will keep reminding me, you've got to entertain people. Uh, <laughs> and, and so to all of this, I, I really appreciate it. I thought they really did land in a great middle middle space between those two things because yeah. something like this can get, you know, I don't see a lot of things like this or see a lot of one-man shows or anything, but it can get so grating and pretentious and overly conceptual so fucking fast i would imagine that it would just turn off anybody you know it just becomes so unenjoyable for everybody except for the performer and i feel like they did a great job of you know there's enough little nuggets in there like you just said randy like oh let's talk about the the label on the bottle let's talk about this let's talk about that without but there's also enough of a connective kind of narrative through it and you don't ever feel you feel lost at times, but you don't ever feel like hopelessly lost, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. And I, I that's, I, I had written down an, another nugget. I think this is a great time as I've asked you guys why uh, several times already, but uh, you know, Weiner says Delgadio's animating goal is not for observers to ask, how did he do it? But why? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's this whole discussion here is like, yeah, but why does he do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I found that very on the nose. Um, that that kind of reminds me, DJ, of like uh, the uh, what you were saying about the weird, like avant-gardeness of things, like uh, when David's uh, David Chase wanted to end the last episode of The Sopranos with like four minutes of like black silence, like from when the the Tony cut to the end, and HBO, the executives were like. People are gonna be like, "What the fuck? Like, you cannot do this, <laughs> nah, dog." Like, no, no. Like, it's it's really. I think uh, this is how I envision it. Like, it just it's just four minutes of silence, and they're like, "How about ten seconds?" <laughs> <laughs> that was where they sort of settled on. It's like we we feel like we can do this for ten seconds, but not four minutes, man. <laughs> Which I think is such an interesting conversation. In in I almost said in and of itself, but uh, just you know, you have these these auteurs who like are just, you know, pontificating all the time about, God, the studio just won't let me do what I want to do, yada, 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 this, nobody gets it, and it is just kind of like a funny reminder of, listen, man, nobody nobody likes uh, the cops, but sometimes they're they're there for a reason, you know, sometimes it's, it's you know, maybe sometimes you, you need to be reined in just a little bit, and it, it's both interesting from that perspective, and then also interesting when you do see the people who are truly turned loose with no creative restrictions uh, and they are able to kind of land the plane. It's uh, it's just really, it's, it's interesting stuff to think about. I think it's like, I'm a big believer in editors and like how you know important they are in sort of the process of writing. Like have been huge for my life, but there's definitely been like a hundred times when I've bristled and been angry about like oh, that edit sucks. Like I, you know, this is my sort of thing. And I, I remember maybe it was like one of the first times uh, I was like a big David Foster Wallace fan, like his nonfiction, particularly for a long time. And then like one of his like posthumous collections came out and it was like, oh, here's David Foster Wallace's famous um, story that it was in Rolling Stone about John McCain during the. As it was intended to be. As it was intended to be. <laughs> and it's like 200 pages long. And it's like, <laughs> you got to like follow the footnotes to the. And, and it's like, David Foster Wallace turned this in. It was like, you should fucking run this as it is. <laughs> and the Rolling Stone was like, uh, well, I think we're going to have to do some edits. And I, me as like a, you know, artist, artiste was like, 
yeah, man. Like, I think they should let David Ross Wallace just just go, man. Just write how he wanted. And then, like, after seeing that, I was like, well, nevertheless, I see that editors do have a good point. <laughs> they do function well. I that's so funny as listening to hear to you talk about that dynamic. I mean, that dynamic shows up everywhere in in everything in yeah. everything. Yeah, I was just thinking back to you know my experience coaching basketball and it's mm -hmm. and it's an age-old question with like you know how much freedom do you give players yeah to, why does the coach exist man you're to, not playing right to do their own thing on the court versus you know how how rigid and structured you want your system to be it, it's mm -hmm. it's an eternal kind of give take push pull it just shows you the power of collaboration right it's like i i literally thought when the credits came up like well frank oz like was this a puppet show like what am i <laughs> getting into here and then i was like oh yeah like frank oz is a really like you know, real well-respected director. Like, of course he needed like a good director to kind of, you know, show. I, I read something too, where uh, Frank Oz said, you know, he didn't really like um, the, all the emotion that Derek shows at the end, which just to sort of skip to the end real quick of that, because he felt like, you know, it's going to come across as insincere, like night after night, like you kind of got all emotional about ending this. And Derek was like, no, that's really how I feel. Like I'm, and if you think about like a theater performance, like someone, no one would question, you know, like, oh, really? Like Lin-Manuel Miranda, you're going to get all emotional <laughs> at the end of Hamilton every single night? <laughs> Come on. But that's what, you know, that's what Derek was doing. It's like, no, I'm really living and breathing this. And so, yes, I'm committing to that. And Oz was like, okay, I guess you're right. So there was some pushback in the opposite direction. Uh Okay, so the, the next diorama or, you know, kind of theme on the wall behind him is is the wolf. And he, I, personally, this was my favorite segment, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and, and he tells a story about, you know, if you're, if you're looking out towards the sunset as, as the sun's coming down to the horizon, you know, that the, the light coming at you almost blinds you to, uh, you know, you, you see an animal, right? It could be a dog. Uh, you're just not sure. It could be a wolf. As you don't know if it's friend or foe. Friend or foe, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, whereas, you know, if you had the sun to your back, looking back the other way, everything's illuminated. And he basically tells you, like, yeah, you don't know whether I'm a dog, which is kind of a, the friend, right, or if I'm a wolf and I'm just here to flat-out manipulate you guys. Uh, and this is where he, he went into, I think, the real cool card tricks. I am such a sucker, you guys, for for card tricks and shuffling. And you want me to order you, order your copy of the book? Yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> I do, I do. Uh, but talk to uh, what do what do you guys have thoughts wise? I I, I don't want to put any, either of you on the spot, but what what do you have thoughts wise around the dog or the wolf? DJ, I got lots of thoughts, so you go ahead. And All right. Uh, well, just very quick. I mean, I I, I think w the best part, and you kind of alluded to it, but just to underscore it, the best part of that section, which is also my favorite section of the show, was it, it's him explaining for, what is it, 5, 10, 12 minutes, just like, hey, FYI, like, I'm a bad dude, man. Here's here's all the bad stuff I can do. Here's who I, I learned it from. Bad dudes. I can do I can do it on command. Look at how good I'm. Not even, I look, don't even look like I'm trying. Which which to to fill people in. That's the you know. Hey, he's been playing in like kind of illegal backroom card games. He's been hired by people to essentially stack the deck, deal them wins. Uh, 
Yeah, just just uh, the seedy underworld of card sharks and hustlers. And it's very fun because it's very glitzy and it's very like, oh, I'm with you. I love card tricks. How did he do it? Oh my god, how did I go back? How'd you do that again? But it's also it, it's the whole premise of the whole show, right? I mean, KVV, you you kind of spoke to this. I know in in text when we were talking about it earlier. Well, that's for me. That's the whole thing that unlocks it is because. I think without that section, you know, I don't know how, how we workshop the whole show, but without that section to me, it doesn't quite seem as fascinating. It doesn't quite, it's just magic tricks. But here he is saying like, look, I'm a dog, but I learned from the best wolves. You know, I learned from essentially people who are almost like the devil themselves. And I'm going to tell you, like, I, I can do this shit with my eyes closed <laughs> and I, I can do it. You know, I can manipulate you. I can make you win. I can you lose. But I'm going to do it for good things, and I hope that you'll accept, like, what I'm about to give you, even if, like, I'm using, like, some kind of shady tactics to do it. And so that's why I think it's kind of fascinating, because you could totally, without that, it could be like, man, fuck this guy. Like, <laughs> this is just utterly manipulative, and, like, you know, my, I, my ascent to my parents and my dad was like, well, I think he's got like a microphone in his ear and like somebody's telling him, you know, who, what their cards say. And I was like, no, dad, like you saw him count the cards. That's what he's doing all over again. Like it's it, all those little stack of cards that are sitting on the table. That's what he showed you. He's doing with a regular deck of cards. And the, the coolest thing about card tricks, I think, is the kind of universality of it. It's like I don't play poker, but I've played plenty of like games of go fish with my kids or like you know a, a ton of like simple card games with your friends you play it on an airplane you play it with teammates when you're sort of on road trips or growing up whatever it's everybody understands cards if you want to so, beat the shit out of your kids i'll send you a uh, copy of the book too <laughs> i would love yeah <laughs> okay they're, they're gonna be blown away by that uh but molly you will know, never win another hand of go she fish will, no <laughs> burst into tears <laughs> keegan will kick the table over and just walk out molly will spend like hours and hours thinking well, what the hell uh, no, but hundred percent, like cards are universal, right? Okay? Everybody knows what a card, what a deck of cards feels like, what it's like to deal a deck of cards. And so that's why those tricks seem all the more fascinating because like a lot of things, I don't, I can't make the Statue of Liberty disappear, but I can deal like cards and flip them over and be like, all right, what's your card? God, I love you. You guys remember <laughs> that? Uh, I think it was an LG commercial for those smart TVs where that guy orders Chinese food from through his TV and he's just sitting in the living room. Oh, yeah. And it's he, your favorite commercial ever. Oh, he's, he's, just, he's just beaming. He's just sitting there with like the biggest <laughs> look of just content bewilderment on his face. Like that's that's me when I see a good card trick. It's just like, oh, man, that's awesome. Uh, I got to be honest. I didn't know that there was – I mean, I, I guess I maybe should have, but, but like my – understanding of like underworld poker was probably limited to the film rounders uh shout out brian Kaufman, friend uh friend of the pod friend of the friend of the golf world but um i i didn't know i, I guess i'd never conceptualized that like you know there's that movie the cooler with william h macy where he's just like bad luck and so he like they sit him like vegas would hire him to sit at tables to like you know bust out hands but this is like a real like example of that and like I, exactly like you could really get like murdered easily if somebody f you know, caught you dealing from the bottom of the deck. And yet like he, like the real Tista was doing this every night, like tempting fate, right? How, how long can you do this and tempt fate? And I, I think I read a different piece where he talked about how 
he was kind of like, ah, you know what? These people are, are bad people anyway, right? They're kind of, you know, there's a lot of like C-list actors or like a lot of, you know, rich guys who would come to, he'd be in these games and mostly be set up like in a, a fancy house in, um, you know, in Beverly Hills or something. Someone would rent out a house and they'd put all this like fake furniture in it and like fake sports memorabilia on the walls and, and to try to, and they'd have like a private chef in the kitchen who would make them like anything they wanted. And so they'd have these like high stakes games with, you know, a $10,000 buy-in. And so he just did it for a while, you know, thinking like, look, I'm not screwing over anybody who really, you know, doesn't deserve to get screwed over. And then one night when he started like busted out one guy, you know, guy probably lost like, you know, $50,000, $100,000. And this poor sad guy was like, well, I'm out. You know, I know you're supposed to tip the dealer. All I got left is five bucks. So here you go. I uh, hope you had a good night. And he was like, Oh my God, like what have I been a part of? Like I just, you know, th- th- these poor saps, like, you know, they didn't even know, they thought it was a game and they didn't even realize that there's there wasn't even a game it was a performance and so he was like shit how can i use these powers for good like how i got to do something better with these skills that i've acquired than to sort of like rip people off and that's kind of when this was slowly started like it's the actual origin story i think of this show and what which i don't know if that you know i don't want to skip over there's other stuff he he tells the story about his mom and the gold brick and right. and all those things which are are very interesting, uh, but I think that almost takes us to the end, right? Where it's, you know, KBV, I know we were talking about this right after I watched it, and you kind of, I felt like I kind of went through the, you know, the cycles of, of, uh, what do you, of acceptance almost watching this, where I, but, you know, different labels, but I watched it and was kind of like, wow, powerful. And then I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, wait, was that like, what was that stupid? Like, is he just walking around? Like he clearly, you know, he had memorized either where people were or, or he, whatever the magic trick was that he, you know, he knows what everybody had identified themselves as. And like, wait, is he just kind of speaking platitudes and like manipulating the shit out of me? And then it, you kind of almost whip all the way back around to like, well, I don't know. Does it matter? Like, what's the, what's his intent here? What's the point of, of what he's doing? Which I think to your, to your point, Kevin, it's like, you know, he clearly wanted to use these skills for, for something else. And I think maybe the argument and where the reviews and all that stuff kind of shake out is, you know, did he use it for something that's a powerful statement on the human condition or did he use it as, you know, to manipulate people into a successful book and show and, and now a uh, streaming, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a great question, like in all, like whether it's music, I think a lot about this about music is, are you really feeling the things that you're saying uh, in this, in these lyrics or this music, or are you doing them because you know that it will evoke an emotional reaction in me? And isn't that like the most cynical thing that you can do, right? Like this isn't a personal story to you. This is just some way that you are using to make money. And I think like you, if you look at like modern country music, I think it's like the Nashville sort of scene. The, almost, the date raping country the, music. I was going to say yeah. the Bo Burnham <laughs> Netflix. That, I mean, it, God, it, it, it strikes a chord with me. Yeah. Almost all of that scene, like the modern country music scene seems to be less like this is a lived experience that I have sort of feel deeply that I want to share with you. And more, this is an algorithm that we've determined is going to, like evoke certain feelings in people. And I don't really even know, like I remember reading once that like 
Miley Cyrus didn't even know who Jay-Z was or something or didn't had never even heard Jay-Z's music but like Party in the USA seemed like a great song for her because like it would appeal to multiple demographics like the you know the Britney Spears demographic and also the the Jay-Z demographic of like yeah like Party in the USA sweet song and so I don't know like I think I I love the idea of debating what matters right like is it intent or is it what actually like you, the emotional response you evoke in people. And the story, I think I told you this over text, DJ, and I'll, I'll share it, is like, I used to be super, like, that guy doesn't really mean it. That guy's, you know, cynical fuck. And Lance Armstrong is one of the best examples of this, right? Is like Lance Armstrong thought that he was sort of like a god for many sort of years. You want to talk about really, a wolf? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, like, I, by all accounts, like a bad guy and like tried to manipulate people like into, you know, tr- just tried to destroy people's careers, like held himself up as like this Jesus figure cancer survivor. Right. And so my opinion of Lance Armstrong was always after the sort of fall was like this, this guy's a scumbag. Like what a huge douchebag. And I was talking to my, my friend, Wright Thompson once and you know, friend of the friend of the pod, the of trap of, draw, a friend of the trap draw, of course. Yeah. And Wright said, you know what? I don't really give a shit about like what his intentions were. I was, I'm going to tell you something. My dad, who he's, he's written a lot about, his dad died of cancer when he was a freshman in college. And his dad read Lance Armstrong's book and was like super inspired by it and was like, you know what? I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for as long as I, ha- I can. And I'm gonna, I, I, I feel like this was before Lance Armstrong had ever sort of been revealed to be a fraud. And Wright was like, it doesn't matter to me that Lance Armstrong was full of shit. My dad believed and he fought for, you know, he lived for another maybe three months. Maybe he lived for longer than he would have because he was trying to hang on instead of sort of giving up. And so for, to me, that's what matters. That's the gift that I got from that. So like Lance Armstrong's intentions, fuck them. Like he wanted to get rich. He wanted to sort of make himself, that's doesn't matter to me. That's irrelevant. And it made me for the first time, like think about that. It's like, okay, that's a really fascinating point is like, what's more important, like what you intended or what people's response was to your art. And I think that's an interesting way to look at this show. Like if you feel like, uh, look, uh, this is too bullshit for me. Like I, it doesn't, you know, those people think when he's, when they're standing up at the end and he's saying like, Oh, you're an ophthalmologist or you're, you know, a builder, you're a leader, you're, you know, they, they, they think on some level, even if it's just sort of like emotional, he's seeing into me. I picked this and he's not, he's looking at the, he knows what cards came up. He's memorized the order. Like he's, he showed us he's doing exactly one more card trick. And so is that cynical or is the fact that those people feel seen in that moment? Is that a good thing? And that's where you have to ask yourself, like, is it, matter if you're a wolf or you know if you're a dog like i, I think i don't know i don't know that the, if there is a right answer to that but i love the sort of moral uh complexity of it and i do actually think that derek feels i think i read a quote for him where he said look it's like i'm breaking into your house and then leaving behind the things that you you really want and so you can either choose to get upset about it <laughs> Or you can accept the things that you genuinely like that I gave you. And I don't know. It's kind of like a, like if someone broke into my house and left me like a really fancy set of golf clubs, would I, 
would I be upset about the fact that, you know, they broke in maybe, but I also might be like, man, but those golf clubs are really cool. <laughs> like I do really want those. <laughs> that That's a lot to unpack. And yeah. it, it's, that's so well said. I mean, I, I think it, yeah, it, it boils down to, you know, are, did you leave, did you live these experiences? Are you making up these experiences for cynical reasons and does it matter? And right? I, I, would ju- I would just, just throw in how fame and popularity can pervert that, right? Where you may start out, that's your lived experience and, and you're, you know, writing a song or creating a piece of art that, that is, that is rooted in, in lived truth. And then, you know, you get famous, you get popular, you make a lot of money. And then it's like, well, you know, you become somewhat uh, disconnected from, from that truth. Disconnected. And I also think there's something to be said for, you know, having a, a crew that all of a sudden depends on you and having, you know, there's the the whole machine, just the, the engine just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a great documentary about, uh, about the Grateful Dead on Amazon, like a six part documentary. And, and I always remember hearing them talk about that, where it was like, listen, was it probably, was it good for Jerry Garcia to, to be on the road for, you know, 35, 40 weeks a year in the early 90s? Like, no, it definitely wasn't. He was addicted to heroin. That was not a good place for him to be. But eventually it just kind of also became like, well, fuck, man, we got, you know, there's 70 people on the payroll. There's 50 people on the payroll, whatever. Like, do we, you know, you you, you probably start feeling selfish for for not delivering the next the next thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like there's a there's a fascinating debate and it's sort of relevant, I think, to our current cultural conversation is like who has the right to tell certain stories, right? Is it, is it have to be based in like your own lived experience? Because for hundreds of years, that wasn't true of novelists or songwriters. I mean, like Bruce Springsteen's Netflix documentary, or I guess it's his Broadway show. If you haven't seen that, you should watch it, even if you're not a Bruce fan, because he talks a lot about the idea that he he wrote all these songs about like driving a car and like this sort of rebellious um, kind of portrait that he was painting for these characters in his songs. And in reality was he, he didn't even know how to drive. Like, and he didn't have a driver's license until he was like 24. So all this like town full of losers and I'm pulling out of here to win was Bruce's imagined character. Right. And, and Bruce saw himself as no different than, like Philip Roth, another New Jersey sort of writer, author sort of thing that he, he, he could invent these characters to tell certain things that he wanted to like imagine. And so, you know, I once wonder sometimes now, like if token were alive would be like, well, yeah, but did you really know any elves? Like, did you really ex- did you live <laughs> with the hobbits, man? And I, I think that that, I think that's a real concern because it's, we've always asked writers and artists and performers to have such creative, like smart minds that they can, you know, tell truths through imagined things. And at the same time, we want, you know, women to tell stories about women. And we don't want men to just write like male character, female characters in books because so many men are fucking terrible at it. And we want, you know, black people to be able to direct films about the black experience, which is why like, everybody ought to go see Judas and the Black Messiah this, you know, this Oscar season. And why Black Panther was so important that, like, Ryan Cougar was the director. And so I think those two conversations 
can have been like in tandem with one another. But I don't think that either extreme is kind of the accurate one where you're saying like only these people can serve. Like if Derek's whole story about his mom, which is, which is true, you know, it's, it was in the, in the times it's like been fact checked a bunch of times he's told it in his books or whatever. If that was invented, would you feel like angry about it? Would you feel manipulated or whatever? I might, I admittedly might, but I'd also have to sort of ask myself, like, does it matter that it's true if it evoked something emotional in me that made me feel more connected to him? And why would I get upset about him manipulating me there and not him manipulating me the dozens of other times throughout the show? You know, like what I, I think that's really interesting. You, like what makes one manipulation okay rather than a, another one? What's kind of interesting about this too is where where Hulu comes in is it takes it from, you know, when you're at the show and you're in the theater, you know, he's you're watching him you know, kind of manipulate yourself, I guess we'll say in, in, in the cynical way. When you're watching on Hulu, you're watching him manipulate. You're watching other people be manipulated, if that makes sense, which mm-hmm. I think adds yeah. a whole other element to it. And I think that, you know, if I wasn't in, I just am curious how I would feel differently, you know, if I was watching it in person versus watching it on TV. And is it is it a trick of cameras and close-ups and, cherry picking the the perfect b-roll and tra- cherry picking the perfect cutaways and all this stuff that really ramps up my emotions did i you know did i give it more more credence because it was so well produced and well packaged or you know what i mean if would i be a little bit more would the bar be a little higher if i was in yeah. person and you know maybe that was an off night at that at that show or, or something like that. You know what I mean? I just, I hated seeing my guy, Tim Gunn get, get got. <laughs> I hated that. Uh, shout out. Bill Gates was, uh, was in there too. Yeah. Um, a leader. I, I think that's interesting. <laughs> and as I was reading some things, you know, they talked about, again, it just cycles back to like, you know, your, your perceptions and, and your lived realities, but, um, the, the letters, right. The letters performance where he, he, picks people out of the audience, they come up, they seemingly choose a letter at random, and it just happens to be from a loved one that they know in their loved one's own writing. Uh, they said one night, you know, a lady read a letter from her husband and her reaction was just kind of... Like very Almost muted. Muted. Or, yeah, confused. And I think if you were in the show that night, you that would have... That reaction would have played a part in how you perceived that that trick, that scene, and, you know, fed into your overall perceptions of the show, um, which is different than you and I watching on Hulu, and we get a master cut that are, like, people bawling when they read the letters. So I, I don't I, – I guess where I'm going with that is it just – to me, it just ties back into that. Yeah, man, it's just, like, everything is just a matter of how you perceive it and how you ex- – you know, how, how your experience um, happened and – I don't know. I just would say, like, I love live theater. Like, I, it's so much fun to go to a show in New York and to experience something where you're in the freaking theater. Uh, it's just a different experience that than watching something on television. I, I will say, like, this, I think this did a pretty good job of capturing that. I didn't, hadn't considered, but I think it's 100% true. DJ's point about, like, you're watching other people be manipulated while you're at the same time being manipulated. And that's kind of a whole other layer of, of fascinating I'm kind of glad like that we're talking about this now. Well, it's still a little bit in its infancy. I mean, it, like, you know, it's, it'll, 
I don't know if it'll get more popular from here, but like there, it isn't so popular that like there's the backlash to it. Right. Like the, no man, fuck that. Like I, I heard about that and then I watched it and I thought it sucked. Like I, one thing that I cannot stand is like when public perception starts to shape like something that if you saw it originally, it was cool and you would have actually liked it. But because later it was popular, your opinion was based off more off of, well, this is popular. So immediately I have to look at this very cynically and think that it sucks. So that's why I think it's good to go into it without knowing what it's about. Like, is you just, your own perceptions are, are what they are. They aren't colored by anything else. You don't want to like it because big Randy liked it. Right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, do you ever, do you ever get that way? I, that, that, that kernel of truth and that, you know, Hey, you stick around long enough. If you have any modicum of success, like eventually people are going to get tired of you and hate you. Like I, I, that's, that's a eyes wide open, like for what we're doing here at no laying up where it's like, yo, if we're successful enough and get to do this long enough, people are going to get tired of us. And, and I think it's just so interesting how bands deal with that and, you know, actors and, and even like athletes to a certain degree, right? You'll, you'll see athletes that kind of turn from beloved to, I don't know, hated too strong of a word, but but kind of... I think people just get the bored. The fan bases turn on them. They just get bit. bored of saying the same things over and over. Yeah. Right? It, it's, it's, it's that constant struggle of like, how do we keep evolving and finding yeah. new truths and, and telling that story? Um, yeah. How do you keep reinventing yourself? Like you're, I mean, you know, I always really admire, even if I don't agree with some of the um, artistic choices, someone who's like, you know what, I'm just going to keep pushing myself and invent, reinventing myself and like thinking about things different ways. Like I may long for the earlier stages of an artist's uh, career because I, they're attached to a time and a place for me. And like, I have, you know, emotions that are, are, of that age but like i still really admire people who kind of constantly change like i i kind of be honest like i i watched the irishman last year and i was like yeah like this is good and all but like i've seen like martin scorsese tell this story like a bunch of freaking times and so you know someone who's like super weird like charlie kaufman who's like telling a different story each time i kind of they might not be as polished or as good but i kind of admire that we it's still on the agenda, but we need to do a perfect club on, on uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we might need to get like you back on for say, that one. I think that like I was part of the original iteration of the perfect club when it was just on email. Do you exactly. remember like way back? hundred percent. Of course. Before your knowing updates, I believe we read like hillbilly elegy and like, uh, what was that the book that we read? I, I feel a little bit responsible that I kind of maybe ruined it because I was like, I'm kind of a snot about books and sometimes I kind of put down with one of the books and like all these people were like, Oh yeah, I don't really want to follow that. So <laughs> we'll just pretty much done with the perfect club. So I, you know, I'm great, grateful that it lived on in its own uh, different way. It, it can never be snuffed out. You know, it's, it's <laughs> the sparks will, will outlive all of us. I hope uh, Randy's have, has a thriving book club on the refuge. We've got a, right. another Moby Dick book club. Think- that's, that's, popped up threatening to to overrun randy's book club uh and and i feel i can't even take credit for the book club at this point people uh nest members refugees have have taken it and run with it um what has been your favorite book randy that you've been introduced to on the the book club oh gosh um hillbilly elegy (laughs) but speaking of uh mounting a a senate run in ohio out of out of the the great city of cincinnati Gosh, I'm trying to think here. Um, you know what was a really interesting book? Have you read Austerlitz? 
Uh, I have not. I'm aware of it. I have a copy of it and have years for years have wanted to read it, but I have just never uh, sat down with it. So. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's some parallels to the conversation we've had today here. Um, it, it's a very interesting book. It, uh, discussion is, is for a different place, but I think that was the one where I probably never would have found that on my own. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I've missed some of them. So I, I, I certainly haven't been in on all of them, but that was one where it's like, that's really interesting. And just hearing other people talk about it and their ideas, it's, it's very worthwhile. Yeah. I think your, your conversation on, on reinventing yourself and why, you know, just, just, it's the, the shut up and play the hits, I guess, kind of conversation is, uh, is something I was thinking about the other day. And, you know, again, not to get too heavy, but you, you start thinking about these things as you, you know, get older, I guess. And just thinking back on how much I've changed as a person over the last, you know, whatever, I'm 33. So the last, 13-ish years since I was in college. I mean, if somebody came up to me right now and just said like, hey, man, I knew you in college. Like, talk to me like we're in college. I I would be like, dude, I... No, like that guy is dead. Like he doesn't exist anymore. I hate, I probably hate a lot of the things I liked in college. I probably hate a lot of the things I said in college. Like the the idea as, you know, as an artist to to transpose that to an artist viewpoint and say like, yeah, yeah, come on, man. Just, just do that stuff. Like, well, I like, you know, Rivers Cuomo. I like the blue album, man. Just fucking do that again. It's like, yeah, that was a thousand years ago. Like, I'm not, you know, I don't know how, what do you mean? How do I even do that? And so it's just, yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting subject. There's a, there's a great Chuck Klosterman essay. I can't remember which one is one of his books where he goes to like a, a rat concert or something, you know, in like <laughs> 1995 or something. And they're, you know, they, they want to play like their new album. Right. And all these people there, they want to hear like, come on to hear the noise or whatever, or, or whatever the famous rat song is. I can't remember. And the lead singer like gets up and is like, yeah, like I, I know like what you guys are here to, to what you guys want to hear. And like, I promise we'll, we'll get to that, but please like, just, just consider like what we're going to play next. Like just give it a fair chance. And then like, I'm trying I to express we'll, myself up here, man. <laughs> I promise we'll play, you know, the hits like we'll get there. And I, I felt like it was written in such a way of like sort of empathy of like under, instead of like making fun of, you know, those kind of artists, it's like, no, like maybe give them a sort of, a, I, God, it must get so like, I, I'm, you know, a big Wilco fan when I was in college and now like, I'm kind of like, eh, but like, it must've been so miserable for Jeff Tweedy to be like, yeah, man, I guess I'll, I'll play like heavy metal drummer again. <laughs> Totally. Do that. And that's a, that's, I mean, speaking of books, that's a, a great example. Jeff Tweedy's uh, autobiography that he wrote, I feel like dives into a ton of this stuff and, and evolving as a songwriter, as a person, all of those things. It's, you know, I don't expect this from every artist whose work I consume in every medium, but even just reading that made me so much more empathetic towards like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I, I will read your, uh, or I will, you know, listen to your new album. That that actually sounds great. You know, I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit more and and uh, have more interest in what you have to say now as a 50-year-old man. It, it, it reminded, that rat story reminded me of the scene from Inside Llewellyn Davis when he's at the dinner party. They're like, come on, man. Play. I forget what song it is, but it's like, come on, man, play that song. It just smashes. With the, yeah, the, the duet with his dead partner. Yeah. yeah. Tough. Um, God, that's a good movie. Well, guys, what what other? Um, I, I wanted to leave the listeners. I, I found um, Derek Delgadio has written a memoir of sorts, I believe, 
called recently published called A Moral Man. I know Shane Ryan of Paste uh, talked about that. He's he, he's been raving about in and of itself. So uh, for anybody looking to dig a little deeper, I I think I might put it on my reading list. I I, I want to check it out. The only other note I had was uh, in that piece. I think Shane Ryan called. Uh, it said Derek feels like an evangelical preacher for urban liberals, which uh, <laughs> which I thought was really, really, really spot on. And I, I think it speaks to, you know, I don't know if we want to wrap on this, but I mean, it speaks to a lot of what you said up front, Randy, a lot of what you said, Kevin, about Wright's dad and, you know, what does the intent matter or does the fact that, you know, you believe in something and you're hopefully moving in the right direction matter? And I think that speaks to music i think it speaks to religion i think it speaks to your profession i think it speaks to marriages i think it speaks to to everything so it's a uh, heavy weighty weighty stuff totally dj the other day uh on the i think it was on the players rap pod you you just in passing referred to jordan spieth as the realitista <laughs> and the more and more i thought about it the more i absolutely loved it <laughs> Because especially like as I was like thinking about this pod, like I, I kind of watched the first fifteen minutes of it, and it it's so like, what if this is the only way that Spieth knows how to live, right? Is to like put himself in these like in straitjackets just to see if he can get out, and yeah. that's like the whole that's what makes him feel alive, right? And so, you know, maybe at Augusta in seventeen or whatever, he blew his brains out, <laughs> and but now like he's back and he's like keeps throwing himself into the arena and being like, isn't this what you come to see? Aren't you entertained? Like I'm, I'm I, the real Tista is a hundred percent speed. What I'm so worried about, uh, <laughs> is that we're going to get to Augusta in a couple of weeks and it's going to, they're both playing so well. It's going to obviously be him and Bryson, Coming down the stretch, and Spieth's just gonna look at him and say, "Like, do you do you know who I am?" And Bryson's gonna say no, and Bryson's gonna fucking drive the 18th green and win or something. <laughs> or Spieth very possible floating very face possible. down in Ray's Creek. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, I, I was gonna ask you guys if you had to take a card off the wall if you went to the show. What what would you pick? Oh my god. I am what? This is a hard question. I don't, it is hard. Would you go cheeky? I, would you go sincere? Well, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to be smoking pot in the dorm room guy here, but like, you know, amateur philosopher. But I think there's something to be said for like the cards aren't blank that you write something on. You know what I mean? Like Correct. You're, you're picking from a... Mm-hmm. predetermined set of things which is interesting in itself right it's it's of course like i think that's that's almost kind of speaks to his whole his whole thing about the six blind guys as they're discovering and you know maybe it maybe it was a magical creature and they all convince themselves it's an elephant i mean it's maybe there's this finite number of of things in the world and you got to kind of pick one like that's that's interesting in in and of itself <laughs> mm. Gosh, that that's great. I uh, if you give me three I options, know. I could pick one. But you know, I don't know. Well, I guess I would turn it and say, what what would you like to see up there? That that that's more what I'm getting at. What what would if it was up there? What would you grab? It's it's so hard. How do you boil yourself down to one one thing, one idea? What do you got? You got any? You got any good ones? I struggle with it. I mean, if I were going cheeky, I would I would maybe grab influencer, but I certainly <laughs> I, I but that's that's fully 
you know, I'm in on the joke. But I wouldn't raise my hand and stand up at the end of the show. I wouldn't feel like that was sincere. I don't know. KVV, do you have anything off the top of your mind? Honestly, like, I'm being sort of a little bit sincere, but also kind of cheeky. Like, we have this funny saying on the on the Refuge um, Blades thread that I sort of coined about, like, I'm an artist now, even if the art is shit. And I, I always kind of think that's a fun way to look at um, doing, like, a creative fun thing, right? It started just because I was, like, I got sort of hooked on the fun idea of, like, instead of, like, like I got to get like clubs that are perfectly fit to me. It was like, no, I'm going to play like blades. Like I'm going to just go the opposite direction and just do it for fun because you can like do things with, with blades that you can't really with other like game improvement clubs. And I was just out on the, like on a rainy day once and hit like a big draw, which I can almost never hit a draw. And it like went way over the green, but I was like, God, that was so fun. Like I'm an artist now, even <laughs> if the artist is like shit. And somebody on the refuge made like stickers out of them and like <laughs> mailed them out to all these people. And so like, it would be fun. I would be like, can I pick artists? Like at the same time, knowing that it's almost like an inside joke, but that is kind of like how I'd like to see myself. Like a, the quality of the art maybe doesn't matter as much as like just trying to do something that's fun and makes you feel kind of alive. Right. That's yeah. a really good one. I like that. I, I don't know. I mean, if you're pinning me down to pick something and this is fairly off the top of the head, maybe go with something like communicator, something like that. I feel like there's, you know, that obviously speaks to, you know, our professional sensibility and talking and making videos and doing a lot of that stuff. But also, you know, hopefully speaks to as a husband, you got to be a communicator and as a member of society, you got to interact with other people and and things like that so hopefully that's i don't know that feels pretty harmless and uh aspirational i think the the interesting thing too is like even as we're doing this right now like you have to be a little bit vulnerable right to sort of reveal something that's real because it'd be easy to be like fuck a dj communicator (laughs) so so you have to like be willing to put yourself out there to be like no that that actually is what i kind of want and i i do admire that that's why I think all those people got emotional because the ones who took it seriously were like, uh, gosh, this is kind of a little bit awkward, but this is how I hope to see myself. And then if someone sees you like that, you're like, holy shit. Like I actually, it's okay for me to feel that way about myself. And we live in such sort of like cynical times that it's so much easier, especially in the world of the internet where we exist, where you can make fun of people who take themselves too seriously and too earnestly and so there's a really fine line to walk, right? And, and I, so I always I admire vulnerability a ton, and I always try to kind of be sympathetic to people who, even if they look dumb, are willing to put themselves out there to be kind of mocked and made fun of in their sincerity. Except, I, except for Bryson, correct? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I so I so want to like hang out with him and like pick apart the weird sort of like it's, it's a little bit. Of, there's there, part of me wonders if it's a little bit like the Phil thing, right? It's like no, no, I just, I'm so good at this. Like, I want to explain it to you, even if that comes off as totally obnoxious. And I think Phil came off the same way for a long time. And will there be like a recalculation 15 years from now where like, man, Bryce is the best. Like, oh, (laughs) he just, he, I can't believe he said that he could swing left-handed was a better way to attack Augusta. And he was like, (laughs) just totally right. God, I hadn't even thought of that possibility. That's oh, that's God. interesting. Bryce is totally going to want to try to win like <laughs> the Grand Slam left-handed after he wins it right-handed. Well, that's kind of like TC's goal. That's what I was going to say. Uh, that's amazing, right? So I, I was thinking I, I don't want to let myself off the hook. I This is, I will say up front, in the spirit of being vulnerable, 
this is one of those things that gives me great anxiety, right? The the interview question. Tell tell me about yourself. You know, tell it's me your greatest strength. Yeah. God, I hate it. What a way for me to just <laughs> shut down and look to crawl into a hole. Uh, I thought this is very cheesy. I think aspirationally, I would love to choose like I am myself, but that brings all kinds of ex- existential dread on like, well, do you know who you are? And are, are like, are you, are you being yourself? Are you getting to that point? So I think if I'm being truthful, I, I, I think it's like, I am, I, I can go negative connotation be like, I am a doubter. I am critical. I'm a worrier, stuff like that. But it's like, I don't want that to define me. It, it's a very, very hard question. Uh, yeah. It's a serious exercise. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say I am I am unsure. I'm unsure <laughs> of a lot of things of myself, this world, uh, this life. But I am curious. Uh, so I guess there's there's two. Great. Gentlemen, Deep. this is this has been a pleasure. What else? Anything? Any parting thoughts? Any last words? No. I thank you for the recommendation. I think we kind of nailed it. Yeah. I I uh, I would love to do this on the regular. I'd yeah. Like, it's so fun to uh, to pick apart these things in the way that I mean I knew the two of you in particular would. Uh, find this very thing fascinating so that's why i, I kept kind of uh pushing it uh and so um i i mean i love recommendations because they, they sort of come with a little bit of that person's own credibility so like if you if someone recommends something to you that you and you end up liking it you like that person that much more and so if, if i find something maybe selfishly that I really like, I'm like, Oh, this, this will make me like more beloved amongst my friends if they like it. And if they don't, then it makes for great like discussion and conversation because for the most part, I don't take it personally. Like if someone's like, no, that sucked. Like, I don't, I don't like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, perfect. KVV. We'll have to do this again. We'll have to find another subject here in the near future. Thank you. I can't think of a better uh, inaugural trap draw visit from you. I appreciate the time. DJ, of course, uh, big thrill to get to discuss this with you. Hey, anytime.